Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we discuss famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Spars, joined here by my co-host, John Stricker. And I have made it back from the literal field of northern Michigan um, and really hope that you all enjoyed our episode last week. And it was a blast to kind of be in the field and experience a lot of what northern Michigan has to offer in the way of literary scene. I know your postcards made me feel like I was on vacation, Stephanie, so thank you. Good. I'm glad. I would highly recommend it. It's a beautiful place if anyone's in the Midwest or not and and is looking for um, some places to travel in the future. Um, Speaking of, John and I are very much looking forward to our upcoming trip this weekend to the Twin Cities in Minnesota to check out the literary scene there. So thank you to everybody who suggested places that we check out and visit. Um, We're very much looking forward to following around F. Scott Fitzgerald, Charles Schultz, August Wilson, um, and Laura Ingalls Wilder as kind of primary takes to, as primary stops for this trip. Uh, So we look forward to bringing you some postcards and doing some exploring throughout the weekend. Stephanie, I'm excited to experience everything that the Twin Cities have to offer and to find out some more about Minnesota literature history. Excellent. Um, Speaking of new things and new surprises, um, John and I are very excited to be presenting some about once a month or so, putting out a miniature episode of Get Lit called Get a Little Lit, uh, where we kind of explore some of the rabbit holes or smaller features that we don't necessarily have a full episode on, um, but kind of a mini episode format. I know a lot of other podcasts do something like that, and we thought this would be kind of a fun way to pull out, uh, maybe from the annals of history, some of the more interesting and intriguing facts that are literary adjacent um, or author-related. You can expect a menagerie of literary oddities, so I think you should check it out. It should be a lot of fun. Yes, we'll be publishing those on Friday. Um, So if you see a surprise pop-up podcast come from us on on your podcast provider, we're very much looking forward to getting those out to you. So our first features, and I'll just give this like as a teaser surprise, um, some information about chickens. So for those of you that are interested in chickens or not interested in chickens, or if you've seen a chicken, uh, you might be curious to check this one out. So we'll leave it at that for now. But please enjoy Get a Little Lit coming this Friday. You do not want to miss it. (laughs) Um, Speaking of not wanting to miss, John is going to be taking our author this week. And I do not want to miss his amazing report and research on James Whitcomb Riley. Um, But before we get to his feature, we do have some literary news. I feel like we have so many fun, exciting pieces of information uh, for this week. But this week's literary news, John, if you don't mind, I went back into the field because I enjoyed it so much. Thank you. I've been enjoying my time off. It's been very restful. (laughs) Good. So this week, NPR put out um, a column, a report, a little listen, a story um, about poetry and specifically how poetry is basically like in their article, they said, a multivitamin for your brain. So I'm always looking for excuses to connect poetry to pretty much anything. But um, traffic apparently on poetry websites has spiked during the pandemic. And they brought in a psychologist to sort of explain why poetry is so good for your brain. Um, Are you ready to hear why, John? Please explain more. I can't imagine how helpful it could be. Good. So apparently reading or listening to poetry activates some of the same areas of the brain that get stimulated by music um, in a lot of different ways. So for folks who have playlists or listen to music, the same parts of your brain, or some of them at least, get activated when you read poetry as well. Um, Additionally, It can also be helpful in activating the high-level thinking parts of your frontal cortex, uh, which is, you know, when you have to break down complicated metaphors or things like that in poetry, your frontal cortex is activated, so it can help exercise that part of your brain. And uh, the emotional element or areas of your brain are also activated while you're doing this. So you can really think of this as like a fun, beneficial workout for your mind, but also one that makes you feel good. So and is I think, beautiful. 
and is beautiful. So anytime you're really craving or looking for poetry, um, you know, know that it's also helping benefit your mind as well. Stephanie, I feel like we knew this already deep in our hearts. Of course. So uh, feel free to check out that little story. Um, It's officially titled um, on NPR's website, Joy, Why Traffic on Poetry Websites Has Increased During the Pandemic. And that came out July 26th, 2021. So feel free to turn to that or, of course, reach out to us if you need a poetry recommendation. I don't think you know how much that would make Stephanie's day. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) <laughs> it like I would very much enjoy helping you find or connecting to a poet or a poem that you wouldn't like. Um, but now I guess we'll turn it over to you, John. I would love to hear more about James Whitcomb Riley because I know negative things about him. Well, you won't be able to say that after this episode, Stephanie. Get ready to go to the faraway, distant regions of Indiana. James Whitcomb Riley was born on October 7th, 1849, which makes him a Libra. Very excellent. Yes. Stephanie, does October 7th, 1849 mean anything other to you? No, not at present, but I would imagine it will in a moment. It will. It is the death day of Edgar Allan Poe. (gasps) So it should be a national holiday then. Yes. Or we should move Halloween from the 31st of October to October 7th. That would be very cool. That would or be really maybe cool. that's the kickoff. <gasps> that's Why not make Halloween a three-week holiday? The official start of the Halloween season is Edgar Allan Poe's death day. That's correct. Thank you. We will put that out there. Uh, trademarked from Gitlit Podcast. You're, you're welcome, everyone. <laughs> so, FamousBirthdays.com did have James Whitcomb Riley. He is the number three most famous person born in 1849, behind the wife of Carl Benz and the first prime minister of Australia. Who's Carl? Like Mercedes? Yes. Benz? Yes, like the car maker. Cool. So the wife. His wife? Okay. Yes. Uh, Does she have a name or is she just the wife? Well, she she has a name, but her only notable (laughs) thing on (laughs) FamousBirthdays.com was that she was the wife of Carl Benz. So I didn't think people would know who she was. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. He is also the number seven. Is her name Mercedes? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> A nice thought. Anywho, please continue. Uh, he is the number seven most famous author born in Indiana behind. Do you ha- want to hazard a guess? I can only name two other Indiana authors, and Kurt Vonnegut and John Green are probably both more famous than this guy, so. Uh, yes, and so is Meg Cabot. Oh, I didn't know she was from Indiana. That's cool. Yes. Also, he's the number 12 most famous James, who is a Libra, behind James <laughs> Chadwick, <laughs> who is a physicist who discovered the neutron. So he's up there with the guy who ah. discovered the neutron. Wow pretty exciting. So Riley was born in the town of Greenfield, Indiana, as the third of six children to Reuben and Elizabeth. So shortly... A middle child. Yes. Like directly in the... He's three of six. He can't get closer Hmm. to the middle than that. Shortly after James was born, the family moved into the city, and the family often took in clients and people who needed help into this city residence. Um, The reason so many people came through the house is because the Greenfield was on the National Road, which is one of the first major improved roads that led west. Like, this is a really big deal. Like, it doesn't get muddy when it rains. Like, this is crazy. Wow. Your wagon won't get stuck? Exactly. It was a big deal. I spent at least 30 minutes looking into the National Road, and I will save you all from it. But it was a very interesting Wikipedia article. So I suggest if you have a couple minutes, aren't interested in road construction. There's no overlap Mm. between our listeners and people interested in road construction. (laughs) You never know. But thank you for the suggestion. (laughs) So... Taking in all these people exposed James to a diverse population, including recent immigrants, um, and both the di- the local dialects and the dialects of immigrants inspired his later poetry. Reuben 
James's father was an attorney, and he was elected as a member to the Indiana House of Representatives the year before James was born. He became friends with the governor, whose name was James Whitcomb, and that's who he named his son after, was the governor. Wow. He must have been a really good guy. He The whole name, not even just James. Right. You're absolutely right. It's James Whitcomb Riley, and he just sticks on his surname at the end, I guess. <laughs> He was a popular governor. I wasn't going to add this, but he brought Indiana closer to being out of debt, which was like a really big deal. And then he served as a um, senator uh, for three years until his death. So seemed like an okay guy. Uh, Elizabeth, James's mother, was very superstitious and often told James stories of fairies and trolls and read him poems. Uh, Both Elizabeth and James placed spirit trappings around the house to capture evil spirits that's cool right what a fun thing to do with your mom hey mom let's go make some spirit trappings to capture the evil spirits that will take our souls okay (laughs) you don't know if that's what he said i don't but that's that's definitely the vibe (laughs) i was getting but i don't even know what a spirit trapping is so if someone does know what this is i would love to know more uh riley had difficulty in school and he was frequently in trouble And as he was frequently punished, he did not like teachers, just in general. He was not a big fan of teachers. So I'm sorry, Stephanie, but he probably wouldn't have liked you very much. Well, we don't know because he's not in my class. That's true. You would have made him like school. Yes. Riley finally graduated from the eighth grade when he was 20 years old. What? (laughs) (laughs) Is that legal? Yes. What does that even mean? That means... He just... He, was, he failed eighth grade and for 10 years. So students, if you ever feel bad about your slow progress through school, James Whitcomb <laughs> Riley, who became a famous author and poet, graduated eighth grade when he was 20. So there's hope for all of us. Why did he bother? I think that it was just expected for him to at least graduate eighth grade. It would be like graduating high school today. I mean, I I get that, but what is this, the 1850s, I guess, at this point? 60s? Right. So just go to the, just go off to the war. Like, don't tell anyone you didn't finish. Just go. Yes. He was a little too young to be in the Civil War, so. Fine. Right. Um, 20 years old, graduated eighth grade. He's on a good, on a good path. Um, Outside of school. Uh, before he graduated, his mother helped him and his friends create original theater works, which they would perform in the back of grocery stores. Uh, when the boys grew older, they called themselves the Aldelphians, and they performed in barns to larger audiences. So he became a semi-serious thespian in his free time. Interesting. So when you were going to pick out your lemons, say, or what have you from the grocery store, you could listen to a monologue? I was get- I would guess it. It would be like after it was closed. I like this idea better. Yes. He, he did live performances while customers were doing their shopping. Stephanie, perhaps you can have a farmer's market during your rehearsals. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone would like to donate or connect me with a produce vendor, let me know. Riley, who referred to himself as Jamesy when he was little, which I thought was a cute nickname, uh, was a 10 when the first library opened in his town. And he and his friends would go there to hear the librarians read aloud stories and poems. And it was here that he developed a deep appreciation of Charles Dickens, which I think we all eventually do. Um, Dickens is is such a gateway, it seems, for a lot of our authors who cite him as like their intro to literature, which is just very amusing to me. I don't know that I would say the same of our youth today. Definitely not, but definitely a touchstone for at least James Whitcomb Riley. With no formal musical training, James also learned guitar and violin well enough to be asked to play at local Masonic functions, which was sort of cool. Uh, So he's sort of a jack of all trades here, but I think the common element is a type of performance. So sort of remember this as the beginning of those inklings as we talk about his later life. Riley's father returned from the Civil War partially paralyzed and was unable to continue his legal practice. And the family soon fell into financial distress and they had to sell their home in 1870 and move back to their farm. 
In August of the same year, Riley's mother died of heart failure. So (gasps) Riley was deeply affected by both the loss of his childhood home, which he loved because it was in the city, and his mother's death. And because of these things, he developed an addiction to alcohol that would last the remainder of his life. Yikes. Right. Um, Due to his father's medical condition, the trauma from the Civil War and the family's crumbling finances, Riley's relationship with his father really deteriorated, even more so because Riley blamed his father's lack of care for his mother as part of the reason why she died. So there's a lot of tension in the house, and Riley doesn't last there but another couple months, and he moves out in November. It's kind of a lot to pin on his dad, who's paralyzed and has just come back from the war. Right. Like, what's he going to do? I know. I, I think... They didn't go into explicit details on what exactly lack of care meant, but hmm. I think if you're trying to make sense of the death of someone, I I would imagine that grief could take a lot of forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, Riley took a job painting houses and then as a Bible salesman, but due to lack of income, he quit both jobs and he started an apprenticeship as a painter. So... Apparently, painting houses, you didn't need to have the formal training, but I think he was looking to do more details or uh, interior work or something else. So once he completed... Okay, so it was not like painting pictures. It was still, it was like painting It was still houses, commercial painting. inside. Right. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Right. I wonder if he did any like, you know, pre-wallpapering, like hand-detailed things like that on a wall i'm glad you asked stephanie once he completed his apprenticeship he opened a business creating and maintaining signs including all the details around the edges of signs and any type of images that needed to be on the signs uh his earliest poems are actually verses he wrote as advertisements for his customers on signboards ah so i guess if there was a sign that he should be a poet you got it That was a slam dunk, Stephanie. (laughs) Thank you. I'm here all week. To earn extra income, Riley participated in local theater productions with the Adelphians. So this group that he had a hand in forming was providing him income as it developed into a full-fledged theater group, which I don't know if there's a lot of us that can say, yes, let me participate in theater for the extra income, but... I'm glad that that's what he worked on and was able to successfully do. So maybe for for folks who have uh, another source of income, that's like the positive spin. Instead of saying like, oh, I have a survival job, but I'm an actor. You can say, oh, I'm a blank, but I act for extra money. That's a good question. I wonder if Riley would have <laughs> characterized it the same way as we are. Just trying to look on the bright side a little that's bit. That's right. Uh, in the winter months, um, he wrote poetry, which he mailed to his brother in Indianapolis, who acted as who acted as his agent. These poems were given to the Indianapolis Mirror newspaper free of charge, and over twenty of his poems appeared in the newspaper. One of which was on the front page. So, I mean, I guess that's exposure, if not income. So that's pretty cool. That's great. I wonder. So, does he count? As being involved in a newspaper in high school or otherwise, because uh, not <laughs> he in was high school, basically because still in school, eighth grade, <laughs> and this all happens actually after he graduates. So this is after ah, he's twenty, very close. Uh, but he does work for a newspaper. So we'll get there in just a minute. In July okay. 1872, he became convinced he could earn more money in sales. So Riley joined a small traveling show around Indiana as a huckster selling patent medicine. During at least one of these stops, Riley presented himself as a formerly blind painter who had been cured by the tonic. What? Yeah. So like a straight up music man kind of charlatan. Like special tonic. (laughs) Uh, it didn't. That was actually just like water with like sugar in it or something. I, Vinegar. I don't know what this first <laughs> traveling sales tonic was, but he works for another one, and I'll get into it in a second. Uh, around February 1873, Riley and some friends begin an advertisement company, which created large billboard-like signs on the sides of buildings and barns. And even though it was very successful, 
Riley was drawn to poetry and he left to write verses on signs in South Bend, Indiana, but he only lasted a month on that job. So just he's going through a lot of different things right now. A lot of ideas. He's looking at the options. That's right. He's exploring. By early 1874, Riley returns home to become a writer full time. He's like, all right, this is really what I want to do. He He read the signs. He did. He got tired of reading the signs. He submitted a poem titled At Last to a Connecticut newspaper, was paid for the submission, and the editors encouraged him to send more poems. Riley was... Was that poem about him graduating? I mean, it might might as well have been. (laughs) Uh, Riley was inspired by this first paycheck to write even more poems, and he had a... uh, someone who would publish his work in this newspaper, but that newspaper folded less than a year later in 1875. So he was back to trying to find someone who would publish and pay for his work. Uh, And he wasn't able to find someone right away. So he began traveling with the Adelphians around central Indiana. So again, this theater troupe seems like they're really taking off. So like great for them. Uh, But he later left them and he joined a traveling tonic show run by the Wizard Oil Company. It was 50 to 70% alcohol. Oh, so did you drink it? You do. It was it was good for oh. both interior and exterior ailments. I don't I don't know that I would want that. They were eventually fined. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and believe it or not, it did not cure cancer, and that's what they claimed, oh. and that's what they were fined for. Okay. That Riley began to write Henry Wadsworth Longfellow to seek his endorsement. He wrote incessantly. So after many attempts, Longfellow finally replied in a brief letter telling Riley, I've read the poems in great pleasure and think they show a true poetic faculty and insight. Now, this is a big deal. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. That's a nice thing to say. He could have said, no, thank you. I'm busy. He could have. Getting a compliment from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was a big deal. It's like having Elton John say you're a good singer. So it holds a lot of weight. And Riley was rightfully very proud of this. And because he was an entrepreneur and a uh, self-promoter, he literally carried this letter with him everywhere he went, like sent copies of it to (laughs) newspapers touting this endorsement. And honestly, it proved successful because he got a job as a reporter at the Anderson Democrat. Was that the point? To get him a job or was it to say that his poetry was good? Well, because he got the endorsement from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he was someone worth having on your team, right? He he produces good work. Okay. Um, at the Anderson Democrat, Riley gathered local news, he wrote articles, he, ins- he assisted in typesetting, and he continued to write poems. And uh, at the same time, he had uh, a-, a small courtship with Adora Meisner, but they decided against marriage and ended the relationship. So okay. a lot of changes in his life still. Um, but I think he's going in the right direction now. I like the idea that he... If he was in charge of typesetting, that he just put like a couple lines of his poetry like in the corner if he had extra space <laughs> to see if he could just get his work in there if anyone would notice. Yeah, either that or a sentence endorsed by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow or something like that. Right. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> just sneaking it in wherever he could. That would be awesome. That's his like one up story that he tells everyone. Yes. Um, remember that time I met Elton John? Um Riley was upset that Eastern periodicals were rejecting his poems because they considered the poems substandard. Riley wanted to prove that the quality of his poems was high, but that the editors were biased against writers who were not from the East Coast. Hmm. So we could reenact this fight. Yes. Riley wrote a poem that imitated Poe and he submitted it to a major newspaper by marketing it as a long lost Poe poem. (gasps) wow right however the consensus from critics was that the quality of the long lost poem was too poor to be pose and he (laughs) (laughs) and eventually riley was exposed as the author which not only harmed his reputation but it cost him his job at the anderson democrat whoops (laughs) right so sort of backfired don't fake plagiarize don't do it 
Though, don't you think it's funny that he, of all people, he chose Poe, who is like died on his birth birth date. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know that he would have known that correlation, but I just like the idea that he thought he was good enough to imitate Edgar Allan Poe. That is also a good point. <laughs> That's like, I get that if, you know, Wadsworth is like, yeah, you're good. This was fun to read. Like, cute. Good job. That's one thing. But it's another thing to be able to take on like the master of American poetry at the time and try to imitate it. <laughs> Right. Especially it's like not even that long after his death. People who knew Poe are still alive. Right. (laughs) Like that's aggressive. Around the same time as this uh, scandal, Riley met Clara Louise Botsford, who was a teacher that was boarding at his father's home. They bonded over their love. So they never spoke (laughs) because she's a teacher. They, They didn't ever talk. That's a good point. I don't know why. That might explain why it was a doomed relationship, because while they bonded over their love for literature, they began a 12-year intermittent relationship that did not end in marriage or anything more serious. Uh, The couple had their first breakup in 1878 due to Riley's alcoholism, and Riley joined a temperance organization where he intended to give up liquor, but he quit the project after a few weeks. He he was always struggling to stop. It's not like he reveled in his alcoholism. It it really was a burden to him. Uh, The two rekindled their relationship in 1883, but it remained unstable, and she ended the relationship when she found correspondence with not only two other women, but the fact that he took one of those women on a secret vacation to Wisconsin. What? I know. It gets worse. He felt that it was appropriate to use Botsford as the inspiration for a poem called The Werewife, which was about a perfect wife who could suddenly become a demonic monster. Yeah. So I wouldn't tell anyone that, let alone maybe her. (laughs) But what do I know? (laughs) Perhaps that was written during one of the periods they were not seeing each other. (laughs) I would hope. But at this point, I don't really know. (laughs) I don't know either. Well, due to that Poe debacle, Riley was blacklisted among the local publications. Good. I mean, he sort of deserved it. Yeah. He joined a traveling lecture circuit where he gave poetry readings, and he actually gained a reputation for entertaining readings. So, I mean, you remember... In his free time, he was a thespian, and he was a kid, and he learned how to perform music in front of people. So, I mean, lecturing sort of makes sense as a way to to gain some money. Uh, Riley also published a play called The Flying Islands of the Night, which was the only play Riley published, and it has some similarities to Midsummer Night's Dream. And it became popular in Indiana to the point where it helped convince newspapers to accept his poetry again. So it was sort of like his penance was to, to author a play that became like locally famous. Uh, in 1879, he was offered a full-time position as a columnist at the Indianapolis Journal. And he eventually dropped the pseudonym he had been writing under this whole time, which was Jay Witt in 1881. I don't know. That kind of has a better ring to it, I think. Than James Whitcomb Riley? Yeah. I would rather know Jay Witt. Yeah. I don't know. I do like this. There's a certain symmetrical quality to James Whitcomb Riley that I like. Well, could you not make that argument with Jay Witt? But it's only two. It feels like it's not long enough to have symmetry. Eh. Anyhow. We have gone on and on about how authors very often have some ties to a newspaper. And I found a quote by James Whitcomb Riley that might explain why this is the case. So are you ready to hear about what he said about working in a newspaper? Yeah, read it. He said that the world with its excellence and follies flows through the repertorial rooms Thus, I was brought into contact with all phases of life. My journalistic work gave me an insight into human nature, which I could have acquired in no other way. Riley's popularity in the Midwest increased due to his stellar performance on the lecture circuit. He was described in an article as follows. His vibrant individual voice, his flexible lips, his droll glance, 
united to make him at once poet and comedian. Comedian in the sense in which makes for tears as well as for laughter. So and that's a glowing review, but kind of a weird thing to focus on. His lips being flexible. I think when I think that's a metaphor. <laughs> or I just like when you said that, I pictured something along the lines of like Robin Williams or Jim Carrey with these sort of very expressive facial gestures almost that they can do. So maybe he was like that. I imagine that was part of it. I, I think he was truly a performer at heart. Um, these lecture circuits took him to every city in Indiana. So <laughs> Woo! I know he really was <laughs> like uh, a, a truly Midwest phenomenon in these early days. So Riley took on the persona of a simple rural poet and common person, which required him to hide his alcohol addiction and abandon his flamboyant fashion sense he employed in his early circuit tours. So he's sort of trying to develop a brand, more or less. I think it's honestly a very modern way to look at one's persona, is this is who I'm selling. This is who I'm trying to cultivate in people's minds. Um, Riley bolstered this persona by writing and publishing new poems that would strengthen this identity. So he, he chose topics that would strengthen the persona that he was going for. Interesting. Right. However, Riley did not achieve the financial success that his popularity in the Midwest suggested. Um, but he drew large crowds in the Midwest, even in Chicago. And eventually, the Lyceum Circuit leaders invited him to make an East Coast tour in 1882. And this is really where his finances would change for the better. Oh, well, that's good. Yes, it was. So his tour started in Boston, which was the literary capital of the country at the time. I mean, you think of, you know, Concord is just there with um, uh, Emerson and Thoreau, and uh, it really was the literary hub. And before this lecture in Boston, Riley was able to arrange an in-person meeting with Longfellow, where Longfellow encouraged Riley to continue his focus on poetry. And this was a huge boon to Riley. Uh, in fact... I like the idea of him being like, oh, will he see me? And then Longfellow just being like, fine. <laughs> yeah, you're great. You're doing great. Just just please stop writing <laughs> me letters. <laughs> well, Longfellow wanted enough to not see Riley again that he dies a month later. So... Perfect. I guess that was his only way out. Um, Good timing. <laughs> Uh, this is one of the meeting of of Longfellow was truly one of Riley's fondest memories. So it was a really big deal for him. In the 1880s, in addition to performing, Riley produced many poems to increase his income. In fact, half of his production of all of his poems were written in the 1880s. So in a ten years wow. ten year exactly, his poems were incredibly popular with the public, and. Uh, his success in the lecture circuit actually convinced one of the prestigious periodicals to finally publish one of his poems, which was called In Swimming Time. Uh, I was going to say, probably not the Southern Review, which was Poe's uh, <laughs> periodical that he started. Edited. Yeah, no, they, they he, I'm sure, never had any Poe aficionado in his corner for the rest of his life. Uh, however, no other poems were published in prestigious periodicals until the 1890s. So it was sort of a one-hit wonder. He was still coming up in the ranks. Uh, but he got that one that one poem through. And it had, where you know, on a book where it'll give endorsements from other authors, right. this singular poem had that original letter, like, printed right below That's it. right. Wadsworth Longfellow's <laughs> poem, just directly under. I mean, letter, directly yes. under it. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the popularity of his poems with the public, which was much higher than the uh, popularity of his poems among the critics or the, uh, um, like the academics, it was likely due to Riley's attempt to evoke scenes of childhood from his readers' past. So some of the titles of his more famous poems are The Old Swimming Hole and When Frost is on the Pumpkin. Excuse me. When Frost is oh. on the punkin. P-U-N-K-I-N. Punkin. Wait, is that where the phrase comes from? I 
It might be. I actually didn't know it was oh. a phrase. I don't, maybe, my mom says it all the time. Mom, let me know. Is the, Did you read a James Whitcomb Riley poem and that's why you say that all the time? I would not be surprised. Your mother went to high school in Indiana and she's a Midwesterner. So, I mean, Whitcomb Riley, this is where he made his mark. All right, we'll find out the connection. Right, but you can sort of see that he is really going for these childhood memories and he is also invoking dialect which he became really famous at both imitating in his lecture circuit and incorporating into his actual poems, um, much like Mark Twain did or many other authors at this time. Uh, but this heavy workload of touring and writing had adverse effects on his health that were even worsened by his drinking. Um, on the plus side, as his success on the East Coast increased in his lecture circuit, so did his finances, and then Riley was able to relax that schedule, which was good. Uh, this also led to an increase in the quality of his poems, since he could reduce <laughs> the quantity he was putting out. Sure. Um, there was still a little romance between Riley and Botsworth, though, and they renewed their relationship for a third time in 1883, they corresponded frequently and had secret rendezvous, and they were apparently much more serious than the other two attempts. But Botsworth became convinced that Riley was seeing another woman, and they ended their relationship. Now, for once, I think that he actually wasn't seeing another woman. At least that's that's what he claims. Uh, mm. Well, I don't fault her for that. I don't either, and neither did Riley's sister, because she chastised Riley for his mistreatment of Botsworth. <laughs> Uh, and Botsworth's reputation actually suffered as a result of the affair uh, to the point where she had a hard time getting gainful employment after this. So he really did do a number on her life. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, also in 1883, Riley publishes a book containing a collection of his poems, and it became widely successful. But his second book, which was titled The Boss Girl, A Christmas Story, and Other Sketches. Wait. James Whitcomb Riley is the originator of hashtag girl boss. No, no. Hashtag boss girl. This is, this is my favorite fact I've ever learned <laughs> about an author. <laughs> oh, I have so many fun things to report out now. This changes my life drastically and I appreciate this. Anytime, Stephanie. Uh, so this was his second book and it was not as successful. And one reviewer called the poems weird nightmarish and eerie and compared them to Poe's work but in a negative way <laughs> Oops. Uh, which I think is so interesting like people really did want to see connections between him and Poe uh, Riley was named the first vice president of the Western Association of Writers which became an organization that was a social club and a rival literary community to that of the East Coast through this association, Riley met the humorist Edgar Wilson Nye, whose nickname was Bill. And so he was literally Bill Nye. What? I know. <laughs> Hang on. The nickname for Edgar is Bill. I'm just telling you. Okay. Uh, and he was from Chicago. So that was a, a big uh, partnership that would pay dividends later on. So... Riley became... Through his educational science videos. That's, that's right. <laughs> uh, Riley became active also in petitioning the U.S. Congress to negotiate treaties to protect American copyright abroad. Uh, but while he was trying to um, petition Congress, he got struck by Bell's palsy, uh, which is where you can't control your facial muscles. Um, wow. So he recovered after three weeks, but he remained secluded to hide his inability to control his facial muscles because he believed that it might be caused by his alcoholism. It's not. They're unrelated, but that's what he thought was causing it. So then I imagine the, the, the shame of having someone draw that conclusion made him hide himself away for even longer. Uh, mm -hmm. And this scared him enough that he made another attempt to quit alcohol with the help of a minister, but he still relapsed. So I mean, it was Yikes. always the devil on his back. Uh, after recovering, Riley briefly participated in a show with Samuel Clements and others. His yeah. performance was so lauded that he quickly became well-known throughout the entire United States. That is wow. this one performance. His face was in newspapers, and 
he became the the number one person people talked about from this show, which actually really upset Clemens. So Clemens was upset at being upstaged by Riley, and he attempted to avoid all future performances with him. Because he didn't Sorry, like... Samuel Clemens as in Mark Twain. Correct. Yes? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Mark Twain was like, no, Riley is too good as of a lecturer. I don't want to be in shows with him because I, I look like a second-rate performer. So... Oh, no. Right. Riley followed up the success of this show by publishing a third book to appeal to British readers and a fourth book of poems and stories based on a fictitious town in Indiana. This third book was entitled Old Fashioned Roses, and it was Riley's favorite because of the high-quality printing and binding and because it contained what he considered his greatest works. Both of these were generally successful and really allowed Riley to quit his job at the journal, so now he can even reduce his workload a little bit more. In 89 and 88, Riley and Nye, remember we had talked about him earlier, they toured the- Edgar Bill. That's right, Bill. They toured the country performing short shows where Riley read humorous poetry and Nye interspersed jokes and stories. Uh, Riley was not allowed to be an equal partner in this venture, though, and he was paid a flat rate for each performance, whereas everyone else got a percentage of the ticket sales. So he was Mm. dramatically underpaid. This difference in financial inclusion as well as the packed touring schedule really affected Riley's physical and emotional health, and it led to his greatest period of alcoholism. Several shows were canceled because he was too inebriated to perform, and this caused Nye to terminate the partnership and the tour, and then several of the partners that had financed the tour threatened to sue Riley for causing the tour to end. So the cause of the breakup, the threats of the lawsuit, and Riley's supposed alcoholism made national news. Like, this was a big deal. This guy who just got famous on the tour, like, I mean, stuff is happening. But because of how well he had cultivated his persona, no one believed he was an alcoholic. And it actually rallied people to his defense. And he became more popular in a good way because of this scandal than being hurt by the accusation of alcoholism. It's like, he can't have possibly been an alcoholism. He's James Whitcomb Riley, the, the sure, humble the poet. the Midwestern poet guy. Right. Yeah. So, wow. again, he's protected by that persona he created. Um, Riley, who had stopped publishing in the aftermath of the scandal, received letters from magazines asking and begging for work because they wanted to uh, capitalize on this uh, public response in defense of him. Sure. So Riley undertook a series of less arduous tours until his last tour in 1895. By the end of these tours, he lamented that when he tried to introduce new material or leave out any of his most popular poems, that the crowds would demand encores until he recited their favorite. So they were more interested in just... Freebird! Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It is a free bird scenario. Okay. (laughs) Critics began to sour on Riley's later work uh, after the early 1880s. And when he published his earlier work in collections, he was accused of ignoring quality of his poems for the sake of making money by just introducing his old stuff that he cut his teeth on that weren't worthy of republication. But he was just trying to capitalize on his name. So I don't know if that's fair or not. I think he was just trying to to stay in in the limelight, I guess. Um, stay relevant. Right, right. I mean, especially after he's done touring, how else does he get his name out there? Following the death of his father in 1894, Riley began regretting not marrying or having children. So to compensate for this, he bought his childhood home and he took in his divorced and widowed sisters and their families. So he ended up taking care of his extended family almost as a stand-in for the family he never had. Hmm. In his later life, Riley often delivered poetry before unveilings of national monuments, and he became such a national figure that he was deemed the unofficial national poet. It wasn't a position yet, but people just called him the national poet. He also wrote eulogies for his famous friends when they died, but due to their poor quality, his publisher requested that he stopped writing them. But Riley refused and continued writing these eulogies for his friends. 
So please stick to poetry. Yeah. Um, Eulogies and elegies. He wrote both. Well, and he couldn't, maybe he just wasn't good with the subjects around grief. I guess. Or he was just getting older. Well, you know, he did his best. Right. And I mean, while it wasn't popular with critics, what he said in his elegies really rang true with the people that were reading things in the newspapers. He touched on the elements of the the recently deceased person's life that meant something to a typical person rather than the literary elite. So, started in 1897, Riley and his nephew completed a collection of his complete works in 1914, which was very uncommon for living authors at the time. So he was one of the first ones to really get his work in order before he passed. Riley's poems by this time had become staples in Ivy League literature courses, and he received numerous honorary degrees. And he was nominated to the National Institute of Arts and Letters, who then conferred upon him a special medal for poetry. So only graduating eighth grade, he got a ton of honorary uh, degrees so and a, and a medal. So I think it worked out for him. He can skip high school and just go straight to graduating college. That's right. Uh, he also supported the careers of writers such as Edgar Lee Masters and Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So ah. he was the Wadsworth Longfellow to many other other writers, helping them along on their <laughs> path. Hopefully he was more helpful than a regretful meeting in a like half-hearted line of two two line letter. It was enough to get him a job, so I think <laughs> That's true. Uh Riley's health declined steeply after nineteen oh one. He had a stroke that rendered him mostly incapable of writing in nineteen ten. He worked with an aide to dictate his last five poems and an autobiography. So he's really, really slowing down in the last years of his life. I can't overstate how immensely popular James Whitcomb Riley was during his life. He was the most read poet since the mid-1880s all the way up to the 1920s. He was the most read poet. More than Shakespeare, wow. more than anyone else. It was James Whitcomb Riley because he wrote in a simple style and evoked childhood memories. Um, accessible. He was very, it sounds like an accessible poet. Exactly. And other people capitalized on his persona. There was a major brand of vegetables called Hoosier Poet Brand Vegetables, which was James Whitcomb <laughs> Riley's nickname was the Hoosier Poet. They literally had a brand of vegetables named after him. I don't even, I don't really understand the connection. The Hoosier Poet potato. Don't you want to buy the Hoosier Poet potato? (laughs) No, I would like to buy my potatoes from Idaho, but I'll take your Hoosier Poet corn. (laughs) Very good. Uh, In 1912, Riley Day was declared and celebrated in Indiana. And in 1916, it became a national holiday. And this annual celebration continued for 50 years. Over 50 years, there there was a Riley Day that people celebrated. Why did it stop? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, we're bringing it back. We're bringing it back. I think so. When Riley died on July 22nd, 1916, it made front page news. Woodrow Wilson offered his condolences, and Riley was offered to lie in the state house at the Indiana State House, which was a privilege that had only been given to Abraham Lincoln. Yes. So he was buried in Crown Hill Cemetery, which was the highest point in Indianapolis. Does that mean anything, acknowledging that this is a Midwestern state and the highest point is like, you know, a foothill? You know what? The fact that (laughs) high places are in such small demand, I think it says a lot. All right. (laughs) We'll we'll give it to him. So some uh, legacies that he left behind was the Riley Hospital for Children, which was created from donors after his death in his honor, as well as Camp Riley, which is a... Uh, Camp for Youth with Disabilities, which is still going strong today. Um, His childhood home and his home in Indianapolis are both museums. A Liberty ship was named after him. And Riley Days is still celebrated in his childhood hometown. Ah, okay. So we just have to make it national again. Right. And it's celebrated in October, Stephanie, so we could still catch it this year. Excellent. (laughs) However, his legacy today is somewhat 
diminished from where it was at the height of his popularity. Starting in the 1930s and going on into the 1950s, critical opinion really shifted in the negative direction, and people viewed him more and more as a minor poet when talking about his literary merit, even though he was incredibly popular. Uh, Mm. Part of the reason why is because of how strategically he commodified his image and style. And they say that that led to a suffering in the quality of his poems and that he relied on some of these dialects and tropes about being uh, a kid and childhood to cover up some structural deficiencies and maybe lack of depth in some of his poems. So that's the, that's how some people view him now. But at the time, I think that he was a balm for the turbulent economic conditions of the Gilded Age. So where everything is, you know, gold on the outside and rotting underneath, I think James Whitcomb Riley comes from a place where he is trying to evoke memories of a better time. So I think that he is worth a read he, I think, made a huge impact here in the Midwest. He's one of Kurt Vonnegut's favorite poets. In fact, the school that Vonnegut went to is the James Whitcomb Riley School. That, wow. That's a public school that he attended. So, well, what do you think, Stephanie? James Whitcomb Riley, you know a little more about him. I do. I feel like I have a lot of fun facts, and I will take this. Does this justify us making girl boss t-shirts? Uh. Yes, I think it does. It's. I think it's. I. We need to read the poem. <laughs> I think. All right, we're gonna. It's. It's a collection, right? Yeah. So we'll sit down and read the poem. The Boss Girl, um, A Christmas Story, and other sketches. That's the collect. That's the collection. Great. Hashtag Boss Girl. We're making those shirts. No, thank you, John. That was that was most excellent. Beautifully researched and, and beautifully told. I, I had a lot of fun listening and learning about him. And obviously, um, a poet, a Midwestern poet, nonetheless, uh, is something that I'm really intrigued by and interested in. I think based on some of my taste and interest in literature that he would definitely fall into those lines. So I'm really excited to give him a read. Very good. I think you'll like him. Well, thank you for all the work that you've done. It was fun to to sit back and have you take the lead on this one. But we're very much looking forward to uh, heading to a different Midwestern area. It's not Indiana, but uh, we're looking forward this weekend to going to the Twin Cities. Take a look at our Get a Little Lit episode this Friday. Thank you for your support of this podcast. And thank you, as always, for keeping it lit. There's one thing I Yeah.